Hey, Twisters, what up? Welcome back to Twisted Philly, the podcast dedicated to my favorite twisted stories about the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Yeah, I decided I'm keeping the tagline we used when we had lots of hookers and brothels up in this joint. Happy Labor Day. I have already finished grilling for the afternoon. We had turkey burgers, salmon burgers. Yeah, we had beef burgers too for the meat eaters. Not sure where you guys were at today, but here in Twisted Philly, the weather was glorious. Sweet Lord above, I wish it could stay like this all the time. I am just coming out of an SVU coma uh, on the Ion channel today, as they often do on holidays. They had an SVU marathon, and the awesome thing about the marathon today is that it started with season one. It was the pilot episode. My daughter and I probably spent, I don't know, four or five hours being lazy asses, sitting on the couch, watching episodes of SVU that we have clearly seen multiple times, but not in sequential order, beginning with the pilot in season one. So before we dive into episode four and my what ups for the week, I need to take a minute or two and talk about the world of female podcasters, specifically female true crime podcasters. And then even more specifically, a group of women who have invited me into their world. These women are amazing. Their podcasts are smart and thoughtful, well-researched. I envy their editing abilities, and they support one another. They are constantly plugging each other's show. They plug my show. They share advice. They share stalker stories. I love these women. They've been in the game longer than me and talk about creating a pathway for the new kid which is slightly ridiculous calling myself the new kid because I think I'm um, a decent amount older than most of them. So if you're not listening to their shows, and some of the shows are The Apex and The Abyss, The Vanished Podcast, Insight Podcast, Already Gone, Once Upon a Crime, Actual Innocence, you are seriously fucking missing out. There are so many great podcasts that I listen to, um, not only true crime, but movies. I like The Epic Film Guys and The Countdown Pod. I listen to podcasts about books like Storm of Spoilers, Cast of Kings, Dark Tower Palaver. So yeah, when the hell do I have the time to be a working mother, a mother to fur babies, write my novels, work a normal job, host a podcast? Who the fuck knows? If I could explain it, then I would be taking away time from actually doing it. But each and every one of the female true crime podcasters I mentioned are doing it. So show them some twisted Philly love, my friends. I want to send a Twisted Philly what up to my subscribers and the five listeners who took time to review the show. That's four more reviews than I had a week ago, and I am most grateful for your ear, for your kind words, especially Miguel. What up, Miguel? If you like what you hear, tell your friends, tell your family, uh, maybe don't tell your kids because, you know, I say shit and fuck sometimes, and I talk about Twisted shit. Uh, a very special what up goes out this episode to a Twitter follower. And you can find me on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. And her name is Maria. A few weeks ago, Maria asked me about a certain seriously twisted Philly killer. I told her I'd be getting to him in a few episodes because there's more twisted, nefarious goings on in Philly than just murder. Well, Maria, this is the episode where we talk about the old man who lived in the shoe. Some call him the cobbler. Some call him the shoemaker. I call him one seriously twisted, creepy, disturbing, deluded individual, Joseph Callinger. When Callinger's reign of terror ended, three were dead, including his 14-year-old son. You murdered your own son? Yes, I did. Why did you do that? 
he was a sacrifice. I was to murder three million people on planet Earth. And he was a sacrifice to see if I could murder one of my own. At the end of murdering all the people on Earth, I was going to murder my own family and then take my own life and become God. Now, if you haven't heard of Joseph Callinger, it's probably because his crimes were in the 70s, before the serial killer population explosion of the 80s, but his story spans decades. And I have to tell you right out of the gate, um, number one, I really don't like this guy. And that's probably a stupid thing to say because I don't think anybody likes serial killers. I mean, obviously we like true crime or I wouldn't be hosting this podcast and you wouldn't be listening, but, you know, we don't like people who kill, um, but we may be fascinated or interested in their stories. I, I can't stand this guy. And... I also don't believe some of the medical assessments that have been made about him. Everything I've read and watched, and believe me, it was a lot, um, indicates that Joseph Callinger suffered from significant delusions. I just don't know if I buy all of that. There's something about his interviews that make me think he was lying. Now, I have absolutely no training whatsoever in psychology or psychiatry or profiling of any sort, so I am sharing this opinion without any basis of education. It's just... Like, it's just a gut feeling. And that's probably really unfair when you consider the the life that this guy had as a child. Okay, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So let's start at the very beginning. Now that damn song from The Sound of Music is in my head. Crap. Um, okay. <laughs> Joseph Callinger was born um, in Northern Liberties Hospital in 1936. Now, interestingly enough, the Democratic National Convention was also held in Philadelphia in 1936. And, you know, to give you a sense of Philadelphia when Callinger was born, you know, me peppering in history wherever I can, um, like most of the country, Philly was smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. So just a few years before Callinger was born in 1933, Philly had the highest unemployment rate in the area. And we had a mayor that was completely oblivious when it came to acknowledging the unemployment situation and the homeless crisis in the city. By 1936, um, almost 15% of the city's population was receiving aid from the Public Relief Board. Men were hitting the streets all day long, pounding the pavement looking for work. So it's really not surprising that Callinger's mother had to put her infant son in a boarding home just two months after he was born. And, you know, we're talking 80 years ago. And at that time, nobody knew or even thought about the immediate bond formed between a mother and child. So as a baby, Callinger developed separation anxiety. So his issues started in infancy. Then his father abandoned his mother, leaving her without any means to support her baby, let alone herself. So by the time he was a year old, Joseph Callinger was put up for adoption through Catholic Adoption Services in Philadelphia. Now he was adopted shortly before his second birthday by an immigrant couple named Stephen and Anna Callinger, although the adoption wasn't actually finalized until 1940. And it wasn't long before the beatings ensued. Now, in my head, I have to separate Callinger the adult from Callinger the child. When I only think about the adult, I am completely repulsed and want to throat punch him. When I think about the child, I'm sickened, but I'm sickened over what he experienced at the hands of his parents. I'm pissed at the community and the system for not knowing what was happening to him as a child. But then again, that's unfair of me because we're talking the 1930s. It's not like CPS or DFS was on top of everything like it is now. Yeah, that was a little bit of sarcasm. So Callinger was beat with wooden spoons at the hands of his parents as young as five. 
He was beat with their fists. Punishments included bizarre things like kneeling on sandpaper for hours, being chased and beaten with brooms and hammers. When he was 11, he started stealing from his parents to, to buy friends. He had no friends. Um, and when his parents caught him stealing, they burned his hands on the stove. So yeah, that was some seriously fucked up punishment. And then when he was eight, he was molested by an older boy in the neighborhood. And eventually he began to demonstrate similar behavior towards other boys by the time he was 13. This is about the same time that he first reports hearing voices. And in particularly, he was hearing a voice telling him to cut someone. So Callinger brings a knife with him when he lures neighborhood boys into the woods. And he graduates from merely asking them to take off their pants to actually assaulting them with a knife. And that's all the detail I'm going to go into on that one. Um, I told you guys in the mini bonus episode that this guy makes me sick, um, but I'm going to spare us the, the more gruesome details. And, you know, I know, like, he's a kid. He's 13 years old. He's a kid that was abused by his parents. He's a kid that was molested. He's a kid that's been abandoned. He's a kid that has no one telling him that what he's doing is messed up. He has no one getting him any help. Um, but still, this is some seriously rough shit that this kid is into by the time he's 13. Now, this whole time, he's been working in his parents' store, and they run a shoe shop, a shoe repair shop. They put this kid's ass to work by the time he was five years old, and he got really good at the family business. He was so good, in fact, that around the age of 15, the voices took notice of his abilities as a cobbler, and they began to tell him that it was his mission to heal the world's psychologically ill through creating magical shoes. Apparently, he had the ability to create something very special in the heel of a shoe, and he was the only person with that knowledge and with that skill and with that ability. And yeah, that was a little shout out to my spotlight peeps. Um, and this isn't just any old voice. He thinks this is the voice of God. So his obsession with creating these magical healing shoes lasts for almost 20 years into his mid-30s. In 1951, around the age of 15, he leaves his parents' house, but instead of getting away from them completely, he continues working in the shoe shop. And then at age 17, he marries his teenage sweetheart, a young woman by the name of Hilda Bergman. Yeah, even creepy fucks can get high school sweethearts. I, when I read that, it reminded me of something a friend of mine used to say, this guy I was friends with, I don't know, when I was like 19 or 20, he had this expression. He used to say that Steven Tyler proved America was indeed a great country because even the ugly guys could get laid. Um, I actually find Steven Tyler very attractive. But that phrase reminded me of, of Callinger and his teenage sweetheart. Um, but his marriage didn't last long because just three years later in 1956, Hilda left him due to domestic violence. And I want to take a minute and, and really acknowledge Hilda because in 1956, you know, domestic abuse in relationships towards spouses and children, it wasn't something that was out in the public. It wasn't something that was talked about. It wasn't something that was on news shows. It was difficult to get support if you found yourself in that situation. And I think for a woman in the 50s, you know, a lot of them would have stayed in an abusive marriage rather than risk being on their own and being shunned as a divorced woman. So Good for Hilda for getting out and getting out quickly. Unfortunately, Callinger married again in 1958. He married a woman named Betty, and they had five children. It would seem that marriage and fatherhood really did not agree with Joseph Callinger because during the late 50s to mid-60s, his mental health deteriorated to the point where he repeatedly set his own house on fire, like three times over a period of eight years. 
He also made his first suicide attempt and was hospitalized for a brief time in a mental institution. So, you know, here's this guy with a childhood history that reads like a horror novel. He abused his first wife. He follows that same path with a second wife. He seems to have an affinity for arson. He hears voices. He's suicidal. And they let him out of the institution. Like, seriously? I mean, I know we're talking the late 60s here, but we are long past the days of the Great Depression. I would like to think that some medical professional in the city of Philadelphia would have been keen on keeping this guy locked up. But no, not in Twisted Philly. So let's let the Kensington cobbler back out on the street to burn up some more shit and beat his kids. Sadly, the apple didn't fall far from the tree because the horrible abuse that he suffered as a child was similarly inflicted on his own children. But Callinger takes it a step further. He creates these barbaric forms of punishment that honestly is is more like torture. And again, I'm not going into the details here. You want the details of that abuse, you can find it online. But he believes this punishment is a re-education plan sanctioned by God. Remember the voices he hears? Right, well, that's what the voices are telling him. So by 1972, three of his older children had enough of this bullshit. Michael, Joey, and Mary Jo go to the Philadelphia police to report severe child abuse at the hands of their father. Callinger and his wife, Betty, deny the abuse. They tell the cops the kids ran away. They're people that like to go out exploring. We don't know where the kids are. We don't know why they would say this. They have no idea what their kids are talking about. Well, Callinger goes to trial. And even though he gets diagnosed with schizophrenia by a court psychologist, he's still considered competent enough to stand trial. And he is found guilty of child abuse. He's sent to jail. And he only spends about seven months behind bars because, and I cannot believe this, he convinces his kids to recant their stories of abuse. You know, maybe they recanted out of fear, fear of what would happen when their father eventually got out of jail if they didn't say they made it up. Who knows? They should have left his ass in jail because two years later, two years after he gets out of jail, his son Joey, who was 14 at the time, and one of the three who reported the abuse goes missing. Joey is found drowned in a vacant building near their home, and police suspect Callinger, but there isn't enough evidence to charge him, even though... He took out a life insurance policy on his kids two weeks before Joey disappears. I mean, come on. That's not enough. By 1974, he has spiraled into a deranged rabbit hole of delusions, primarily one of a disembodied head by the name of Charlie. Now, Charlie follows Callinger around and talks to him, and Callinger believes that this disembodied head he calls Charlie is the voice of God. And suddenly, after 20 years of sending Callinger on a mission to save the human race with his magical heeled shoes, his mission from God changes. Instead of helping people, Callinger is now ordered to kill people. In fact, he believes that he is supposed to kill all 300 million people in America. Damn, and you thought your job was hard. Like, that's a tall order for one crazy shoemaker. No doubt something he can't possibly do on his own. So what does he do? He enlists the help of his son, Michael. Now, there's conflicting reports about Michael's age at this time. Some references and, you know, local Philadelphia papers, the Inquirer from, from the time of these, these crimes say he's 15. Other sources say he's 13. I'm going to say he's 15. I think maybe what happened is Michael was 13 when he and his siblings reported the child abuse, and that was two years before Michael started helping his father with his crimes. Who knows? For the sake of the podcast, we're going to say he's 15. And, and I think this is what makes me really hate this guy as much as I do. It's bad enough, whether he's deluded or making it up, but it's bad enough that he goes on this, this spree of, of killing and other crimes that we're about to get into. 
but he brings his kid into it. And, and his kids suffer horrible abuse. And it's like as if the abuse at home isn't bad enough. Now he pulls his kid into his own twisted criminal delusions. And yeah, I, I think this is what does it for me. I think this is what really makes me hate this guy. So beginning in the summer of 1974, Callinger and his son Michael start to hit houses in Philly and Baltimore and New Jersey. They start breaking into homes, they torture the residents and the homeowners, and they rob them. Like, this guy seriously thinks that it's the voice of God telling him to do this. When everything about God is like peace and love and light and love the little children, I mean, clearly this is not the voice of God. And this is where I really question whether or not some of these delusions were real. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe he did think it was the voice of God. I think it's bullshit. Their tally after their crime spree of assault and robbery was significant impacts on four families and three murders. What sucks is that Callinger uses his son to create an impression of safety. So here's what he does, right? He picks houses at random. He knocks on the doors, pretending to be a door-to-door salesman. And I think it's a little odd for a door-to-door salesman to be out working with their kid, but I don't know, maybe it's not odd in 1974. I was only five then. And no one suspects that there is a sick, twisted fuck at their door because he's got his kid with him. So in January 1975, they commit the crime that eventually leads to their capture and Callinger's incarceration. Joseph Callinger and Michael hit a house in Leonia, New Jersey. They had seven people held hostage in that house. A young woman named Maria Fashing, who was a 21-year-old practical nurse, was visiting the home that Callinger targeted. Once she got inside, he grabbed her, he tied her up, and she refused to engage in sex acts with him. And then she insulted him and berated him for what he was doing. This chick was kick-ass badass that she would go up against a psycho like this. So what does he do? He drags her into the basement and he slits her throat. One of the residents who was tied up manages to escape and runs out of the house and the neighbors see her, they contact police. And although they call the police, Callinger and his son have already made their getaway on a city bus. Like, did, did no one on that bus notice that maybe they had blood on them? Maybe these guys look suspicious? What actually tripped him up was he left a bloody shirt at the crime scene that had his name printed on the tag, like how your parents wrote your name in your shorts for camp. Callender's tally of murder, mayhem, and crime included an assault at a home in Dermot two days before Maria Fashing's murder. Um, at that assault, he was charged with robbery, lewdness, sexual assault, like lewdness. When I read lewdness, I was a little surprised. He killed people. He tied them up. He raped them. He robbed them. And you're charging him with lewdness? Like, what does that add? Another two months? He was also charged with robbery of four women at a bridge party. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I thought that was funny. Um, at a bridge party in Harrisburg in December of 74. And he was charged with robbery and assault at two homes in Lindewold in November of 74, along with other burglaries near Baltimore and Philadelphia. Okay, that was a lot. That was a whole lot. But there is even so much more... I, I, yeah, this guy is so fucking twisted. So police begin by charging him with the lesser crimes. They charge him with robbery because they want to get his ass behind bars while they build the larger case for murder. And he's charged in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So in Pennsylvania, he gets 40 years for burglary and assault, and then he gets life in prison for murder in Jersey. Kellinger is experiencing classic symptoms of schizophrenia, bizarre magical thinking, and hearing voices. It is not uncommon for schizophrenics to interpret these voices and experience as communications from God. 
And during his trials, his legal team tried to go for an insanity defense. Of course they go for an insanity defense. First, they say that he's delusional and hears voices because of the toxic chemicals that he was exposed to for most of his life in his parents' shoe shop and then his own shoe shop that he opened when he was older. And the chemicals affected his brain. That's bullshit. The jury didn't buy it. So then they say he suffers from multiple personality disorders. His legal team gets approval from the judge to have Callinger interviewed by a woman named Flora Rita Schrieber. Schrieber was a journalist who wrote a book called Sybil, and that was about a woman who suffered from 16 different personalities. And, you know, it was huge in the 70s. She kind of blew the lid off the concept of multiple personality disorders. Well, she doesn't just interview him for the court. She winds up working with him on his biography and writes a friggin' bestseller. The book isn't actually published until 83, but Callinger tries to get proceeds from the book. Like, he and his wife were supposed to get 12.5% of revenue from book sales. Thank God the book was published six months after the courts passed a law that killers cannot receive profits from their stories about their crimes. He had his lawyers go to court saying that he was being censored. Nobody bought it. It was all thrown out of court. But this idiot in the book admits to two more murders. And you can probably guess the first one. His son, Joey, who was found drowned in an abandoned building near Callender's home. The second murder was random. It was totally random. And it's really what started his killing spree. Callinger and his son, Michael, abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered a nine-year-old little boy from the neighborhood named Jose Calazzo. By his own admission, Callinger is now charged with two more murders in Pennsylvania, Joey and Jose, and he's sentenced to two more life terms. But when Jose Calazzo was murdered, police arrested an innocent man for his death. The guy's name was Gilbert Marlin, and he lived in the Logan section of Philly. Marlin was held in jail for 12 days after Jose's murder, while police showed him horrific, disturbing photos of murdered children in an effort to get him to confess. And he didn't, because he didn't do it. When he was let out of jail, lost his job. And then he struggled for years to put his life back together, even though he was innocent. Um, in 1984, after the book came out, Marlin sued Joseph Callinger and the city of Philadelphia for false arrest, but he never got anything. So what about that son of his, right? Michael, the one who helped with the robberies and the assaults? Well, he got off easy. Michael was considered to be under the control of his father and not responsible for the crimes. So he was only charged with robbery. He got sentenced to reform school, and then he was released when he was 21. Supposedly, he moved to another state and changed his name, and that scares me silly. I mean, where is this guy? What state is he in? I'm glad it's not PA, but like, did he really even move? I mean, there are tons of places that someone could start a new life in Pennsylvania. And honestly, I don't want him living anywhere in our country or any other country. I mean, you can't tell me that growing up with a delusional, schizophrenic, abusive father who forced him to sexually assault their victims didn't fuck him up in some way. Callinger was initially incarcerated in a state prison in Huntington, Pennsylvania, but then he was moved to Fairview State Hospital for the criminally insane after he attacked another inmate with a razor-studded belt. Yeah. Something he made himself. How the hell do you get your hands on supplies to make a razor belt in prison? Like, are razors part of art therapy? Don't you just shank someone? Um, or, I sound really stupid right now, but is it do you shank someone with a shiv or do you shiv someone with a shank? I honestly don't know. Um, in my mind, those words are interchangeable, but I'm not sure if they are. So if somebody knows, please tell me. While Callinger is at Fairview, he attacks inmates. He has multiple suicide attempts. 
including swallowing shards of glass and pieces of metal, like steeples and paper clips. Again, I ask, where the hell do you get these things if you're in prison? I must have, like, this really naive view of prison, even though I did watch The Night Of on HBO. It's awesome. If you haven't watched it, go watch it on demand. So I get it. Like, prison today in 2016, people can get their hands on all kinds of stuff. But I guess in my naive, deluded mind, in 1980, prisoners shouldn't be able to get shards of broken glass and metal to eat in an effort to kill themselves. He tried to set fire to his cell. He swallowed a spoon, so he was forced to eat his meals with his hands. His numerous suicide attempts got so bad that at one point he was kept in a heated cell with nothing on but boxer shorts. And the entire time he's in prison, right, all of these years, he still hears voices or claims he hears voices. He's still talking to God. He's also talking to Satan now, too. He's still talking to his friend Charlie, the disembodied head. Plus, he's got a new voice now, somebody named Double, who gives him orders to kill everyone. So he's still planning that massacre of 300 million Americans. Off and on throughout his trials and his incarcerations, there are varying reports of Callinger's psychosis and his delusions. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic after the child abuse claims in 74, and then later he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Now, Dr. Joffrey, who was the chief of psychiatry at Fairview State Hospital, thought Callinger was faking his delusions. He also thought he was faking a true desire to take his own life. He thought he was doing it as a way of manipulating a situation and the system to his favor. This led Callinger to lose his shit, and he attacked Dr. Joffrey in 1990 and then went on a hunger strike. Here's the problem. Dr. Joffrey and the state want to send Callinger back to state prison. He wants to stay at Fairview. The court can't send him back to state prison until he ends his hunger strike, which means he gets to stay at Fairview. But if he eats and saves his life, then he leaves Fairview and goes back to state prison. I mean, this guy is manipulative as shit. And again, that's where my question comes in about these delusions. If somebody is truly that checked out from reality, could they be that manipulative? In July of 1990, a Pennsylvania judge granted Callinger the right to starve himself, which means he got to stay at Fairview, but then he didn't because at the end of 1990, the state went ahead and transferred him back to Crescent State Prison. So all those manipulations, going to court, testifying on a stretcher because he was too weak to stand, didn't get him the outcome that he wanted. Joseph Callinger spent the last five years of incarceration in solitary confinement and on nonstop suicide watch. Before placing him on his scale of evil, Dr. Stone considers the childhood, the madness, and the crimes of Joseph Callinger. Callinger is a rare specimen. The sadistic delusional killer, capable of inflicting great pain upon his victims. Because of the cunning, predatory nature of his crimes and the torture he subjected some of his victims to, I place him at level 20 on my scale. He died on March 26, 1996, from complications arising from a number of issues, including seizure-like symptoms, choking on his own vomit. Yeah, I know that's disgusting, and normally I would leave shit like that out, but I really don't like this guy, so I'm going to go ahead and share it anyway. Um, and ultimately, respiratory arrest. Prison officials said his body was claimed by a son from Philadelphia. That means as recently as 20 years ago, at least one of his kids was still living in the city. So here I sit at my desk in my little home office nook thinking about that. Where are his kids? Did they survive? Um, did they survive unscathed? Do I even want to be asking these questions on a public forum like a podcast? Like, is somebody going to hurt me if they're listening? Please don't hurt me. 
I'm not the first person to tell your dad's story. I'm sorry you had such a horrible father. No bullshit. I'm serious. If his kids are out there, I hope they're okay. I hope that once their father's evil crimes and heinous behavior came to light, that somebody got those kids some help. You know, sometimes you learn from your parents how you want to be when you become a parent yourself. And sometimes, like in the case of Joseph Callinger, you learn exactly how not to fucking be when you become a parent. That's my scary noise. I keep saying it. I do not like this guy. He is a twisted fuck. But that's why he belongs right here on Twisted Philly, on the Twisted Philly podcast. Murder, mayhem, nefarious goings on. This guy had all three and then some. And that's probably why I do true crime every couple of episodes and not every episode back to back because I need to recover from it. I like it and I'm fascinated by it, but it also creeps me out and then it scares me and I like worry when I'm walking to my car late at night. Maria, another what up to you. I hope you liked this episode. I know you were looking forward to hearing about Joseph Callinger. So I hope I told the story in the way that you were expecting to hear it. Please let me know. Uh, Before I go, I would like to remind folks that you can show your love for Twisted Philly by subscribing on iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave me a review. And you know what? If you don't like what you hear, you can leave me a review too. You probably won't get a what up, but hey, I'm not into censorship. So good or bad, I'd love to hear what you have to say. We've got shirts. You can check them out on twistedphillypodcast.threadless.com. We've got men's, women's, kids, and babies. Remember, I wouldn't encourage kids to listen to the show, but I sure as shit would encourage them to wear my t-shirts. That's it for me. Ciao for now, twisters.